Okay, so we are um, into uh, part 20. Uh, I don't know how many parts this will be. Um, this will be quite a number of parts by the time I think we finish that. Um, maybe like 150 parts or something. Um, but we're, we're at um, uh, Acts 8, verse 26 to 40. And this is, a, this is continuing in Philip's ministry. This is what he does. This is... Um, what he is called to do. And now we're seeing the second part almost of his ministry, uh, which is he's going to speak to the Ethiopian eunuch. Um, and so today we read about this sudden change in Philip's ministry. Uh, last week we saw that Philip was leading many to Christ and then Peter uh, and John coming alongside to give the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, last week we looked at the risk of shallow belief, shallow faith. Um, and embracing uh, risk of embracing the, embracing the Christian faith in a superficial way. This week we delve a bit further into that subject, um, but I want to look at today. I want to look at the specific role of Philip in this moment to help us understand an important aspect of who people are convicted by and convicted to. Um, our system of church normally operates. As much, and I don't mean just us, I mean sort of the, 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 the general church around the world maybe. Um, but the general principle is we operate on a one-man ministry, uh, which can be to our detriment. And what I mean by that is that the church has got probably a little bit comfortable with either the preacher, the pastor, or even uh, the, the gifted evangelist um, within the church as being a kind of one that does gets pushed out, go and speak to all the people and bring them to church. Uh, and... and and that's probably what we've been used to and something I, I certainly um, am hoping to change <laughs> from here. I, I know too, uh, we, we, I certainly want to change that here. And, and I think everyone here is, is well aware that we don't practice that uh, purposefully. Um, I might be the only pastor or elder here, but uh, that doesn't mean I'm the only one. And I know that the church is engaged in everyday life engaging with non-Christians, engaging with people everywhere. Um, and so maybe this isn't uh, strictly for us in that sense, but it is a warning that we need to make sure we don't fall back into this, uh, leave it to the gifted ones that we think are just gifted for certain things. Um, and what we learned last week is that Philip was a, a deacon evangelist. What we also learned was that God had put other people in place to be part of the effort to complete that process. And we saw Peter and John laying hands and asking for the Holy Spirit to come and fill them, and they did. Um, but what I want us to understand today is, the, is this light touch approach that God is, uh, is doing here through Philip in terms of making sure that when people are shown and taught about the gospel, that the gospel always points to Jesus, not the sharer, not the messenger. It's really important. One of the important components of a person being truly convicted by Jesus, I certainly believe, is, is not to create followers for the teacher, the preacher, evangelist, the person uh, who is engaging with them, who's connecting with them. But it's to ensure that whatever happens to the messenger evangelist, whatever happens to the preacher, the leader of the church, their faith, that person's faith in Jesus is what keeps them anchored. Uh, not how impressed they were by the said evangelist, messenger, leader, preacher, whatever you want to call it. And we just need to remember here as we get into this message, we are here to make sure that the church is growing and make sure it's equipped, making disciples for Jesus, irrespective of who comes and goes from the building itself. 
It is that people love his church because they love him, not because the church has great speakers, childcare, or amazing social services it can offer. So let's have a look. Acts 8, verse 26 to 40. Um, relatively long, but let's, let's go through. 8, 26 to 40. Um, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. And Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah. I don't know why that has done that. Excuse me. Uh, reading Isaiah, uh, the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. This is what he's reading. And there's a lamb before the shearer is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. But who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, excuse me as I uh, sort this out. <laughs> the eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? Philip began with that very passive scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they travelled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptised? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptised him. When they came out, uh, up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him. And technical problems did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and travelled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. You have to excuse me, there's some technical issues with the verses. So I'm, you're seeing it, but I'm not. So it kind of just disappears off the screen for a moment. Anyway, let's get into what we are looking at. I think as the saying goes, let's start from the beginning. Nothing different about what we do here. Um, the first verse of our reading is significant in many ways, but in learning about how to ensure we remain an instrument and not a conductor in sharing the gospel, it is crucial. We are, to give you a kind of example here, we need to be open to the leading of God so we can each be used as an instrument, an individual believer, if you like. And as part of the whole orchestra, so we're going down the orchestra theme, the whole church, that being the whole church, we must be in tune, in sync, and in step with the conductor. And who's the conductor? God. Yeah? So we understand that, right? God is conductor. We're the instruments. The orchestra is the church. Does that make sense? Yeah? Okay, good example, I think. I think it's all right. Let's look at this verse. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12 to 14. It says, The body is a unit, though it is made up many parts, and though all of its parts are many, they form one body, so it is with Christ. For we're all baptized by one spirit to one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now, the body is not made up of one, but of many. Verse 28, and in the church, God has appointed, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then works of, workers of miracles, also those having gifts of healing. We saw that last week as well. Uh, gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues and the body 
is in Christ. Really important point just to ground us in this teaching uh, that the body is in Christ. What we do is all about Jesus, not about us or our fame or our glory or celebrity or whatever you want to call it. So whatever we uh, do, um, it should not reflect us, but it should reflect the body that belongs to Jesus. So Philip here is doing what he's called to do. He's an evangelist. He's a deacon. As part of the new wider church or, or body of Christ that's going out across other parts of the world. And for Philip, I think probably for many of us, it's probably very easy to sit in a place where the masses are almost uh, queuing up for the gospel. Remember where he was when we read last week? There's just loads of people in Samaria. The place is kind of, I would say, riddled with, with, with false religion, false gods. And so there, there is kind of, a, it's a mission field of ripeness. It's ready to be picked. So Philip going there, uh, actually, he could just stay there and keep evangelizing, keep telling people about Jesus non-stop, non-stop. On tap people just wanting to hear what he's got to say. So you might think maybe if we were there, we just want to stay there, right? Because it feels good because Christ is being preached and people are being saved. So Philip was conducting this very successful evangelistic campaign in Samaria. But in the midst of this mighty revival, an angel brings him a message from God. And I imagine in part, to some degree, not what he was expecting. But we must remember that Philip is an evangelist. He's more guided by the Spirit in the sense of he's, he feels, I would argue, more freer to go and be led by God. So if God tells him to go, he's not so scared to go to other places uh, just on the whim because he's an evangelist. That's what he does, and he loves it. So it's almost, there is almost still sort of quite comfortable thing that God is, is getting him to do. And so I think it's a good checkpoint and a reminder both to Philip and to us about the importance of genuine relational evangelism. You see, the scale of Philip's evangelism is going to differ when he encounters the Ethiopian. Remember, he's, he's talking to hundreds, uh, maybe thousands, but now he's going to talk to one person. But what I want to show in this is that Philip remains the same. He doesn't change because there's one. He doesn't change because there's a thousand. It's always about preaching Jesus. It's never about how good he is at preaching it. The really important point that he's not bringing people to himself, but bring, bringing people to Jesus. And so the first verse that we read even gives us that insight almost straight away into the way the message is delivered to Philip. It says in verse 26, now an angel, Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Only one instruction. One instruction. Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. There were no detailed instructions about what he's going to do when he gets there. God said, just go there and be there. As I said, you see, Philip is, is quite uh, easy on following these instructions. He's an evangelist who will go where God leads him. But he has an outlook and a gift that's ready to see opportunity to evangelize wherever he is. So what God's doing is playing to his strengths, playing to his strength, even though the messenger to Philip has been somewhat ambiguous around the intention and the motive. But for this part, Philip doesn't need that, because he he's already has the intention and motive 
to evangelize. He just needs to be pointed in the right direction. Imagine a wind-up toy. Remember those wind-up toys? They probably don't exist anymore, do they? You know when you pull them back and you let the cars go? They probably don't exist anymore because it's all battery electric and rechargeable and all that stuff. But it just needs to be pointed in the right direction, right? And the car just goes in that one direction. Same with Philip. He just needs to be told where to go and I'll just do what I'm called to do. I'll just it doesn't matter about the environment or circumstance. I'm going to go and do what God has laid on my heart to do. Philip was this effective evangelist because he knew how to flow with what the Holy Spirit wanted to do. He was truly led by the Spirit, not by his own whims and his own feelings. So we can understand that Philip is comfortable being the instrument by which God will use to spread the gospel. Verse 27 in our reading says this. So he started out and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury, of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, this man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. So this is where we meet the Ethiopian eunuch. This person was from Ethiopia. Uh, I don't think I need to, uh, that's no surprise, is it, when we read that, um, in Africa, um, and had come all the way up to Jerusalem. It's probably at least 500 miles. Uh, so he's travelled quite some way. Uh, from where he is, and it's a chariot as well, it's, you know, it's, it's a slow journey. And in those days, uh, Ethiopia was this large kingdom located south of Egypt. His identification with being a eunuch meant that he would have been denied access to the temple and the opportunity to become a full a proselyte to Judaism. He couldn't fully be recognised as a Jew because, or even a convert to Judaism uh, because of his state. He was, in a, in a sense, castrated. He was emasculated. Uh, so th there was a sense that he couldn't do that. Um, and, and that wasn't allowed. It's, you're sitting, I haven't got the verse up, but Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, talks about um, those, uh, th that rule, as it were. So he's an emasculated, castrated male. And often considered eunuchs were given these high positions in government because they were not subject to sexual temptations. Um, gets quite detailed but they weren't they weren't because they didn't have that anymore that feeling anymore that that they were sort of seen as people who couldn't be compromised by by um sexual temptation sexual bribes even um as were other men so he held a position of authority in the queen's court uh that of treasurer much like probably a minister of finance or something like that um he was a powerful man and his influence extended for ethiopia and egypt so we've seen already, why does God choose this Ethiopian? He's got power. He's got influence. He's got influence amongst where he's going to be. It's actually written afterwards. It's not in the Bible, but there's, there's some manuscripts written that talk about, that might be about the, this eunuch and how he spread the gospel uh, to where he went, to where he went around. And that was, that's quite amazing to hear. It's not necessarily that guy, but it seems to line up uh, with, with what happened to him. Uh, but powerful man, and so people would listen to him, uh, and people would hear him. Uh, he's obviously rich. Uh, he could afford a fancy chariot, which many people couldn't. Uh, a vacation to Jerusalem as well. We could go to Jerusalem. Many people couldn't make that 500 or more journey, 500 miles. He had money to buy a scroll of the book of Isaiah as well. And that was costly. That was expensive. 
very expensive to, to, to buy those scrolls. So this is a guy that's influenced, he's rich. He is, he is someone that God has particularly chosen out to spread the gospel outside of Jerusalem, to keep spreading the gospel further and further for particular reasons. He had an interest in the scriptures. He was willing to tackle one of the toughest doctrinal books in the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah. If you ever read it, it's full of visions and all sorts of prophecy and future things. And it, it, it's not an easy book. It's not the first book you'd probably pick up. It, it's not a simple book. And I would suggest that you kind of read uh, before that in order to build yourself up to Isaiah. Uh, it, it's, no, um, it's no Leviticus, but it, but it is a, a very complex book of visions. You're always switching between visions and prophecies and all sorts of stuff. So, you know, this guy, he's engaged. To pick Isaiah as a book to read, that's, that's, that's good going. So he's obviously this very intelligent man, a true searcher for truth. So all in all, this would be somewhat of a different encounter and experience for Philip. These are just unbelievers in search of truth. This is someone now who is already religious, who is keen on the scriptures and can engage with it. To some degree, part of the work is, is done. He's curious. I mean, he's so curious he's reading Isaiah. But the main difference for Philip is that he will need to engage more specifically with this man than others. The Spirit tells Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. And what happens is he hears a man reading. He hears the man in the chariot, the eunuch, the Ethiopian, reading aloud. And it was actually common in the ancient world for people to read aloud. So I can imagine if you've got a busy road that maybe there's lots of noise. It's very noisy, people reading things and they read aloud. Generally, that was expected. It wasn't unusual. Um, maybe sort of similar to seeing people on the train when people were singing with their earphones in. I've seen that. I don't know if you've seen that. On the bus, people singing to themselves and you can't hear the music, but they think they've got the most wonderful voice in the world. Um, it's amazing what it can do to block out your own voice when you've got earphones in. Um, and it's just, that's one. Of, but, but this is great. You're, what he's hearing is Isaiah being read out loud. Be, that must be great. That must be a nice moment to feel that Scripture is being read out loud. Philip knew that uh, what the Ethiopian was reading by listening, as he read, he knew. He knew the Scripture. So he then asked him out of the blue by using his gift and the sermon as an evangelist, do you know what you are reading? He says, do you understand it? And here's the first key moment and lesson in making sure that we as messengers of the gospel, that we're not putting ourselves at the center of or the reason for why someone might become a Christian. Philip asked a question, and what happens then? Maybe what would happen in this day and age sometimes is that we might jump in the chariot, start telling him all about Jesus, before he's even uttered a word to us. Oh, you're reading the Bible, let me tell you all about Jesus. He doesn't do that. He doesn't jump straight in, he doesn't, doesn't ignore what, uh, what the person. He asks a question with the intention of placing the burden of invitation on the Ethiopian. And Philip keeping this right distance, he, 
he sort of, he tempts his interest. He says, do you understand what you're reading? I mean, Phillips, I can go. I can leave. God will send me somewhere else. And we do see that. I can go. I don't have to tell you anything. But you understand it. I can tell you a bit about it. Puts the burden back on him to respond. He's inviting, but not making himself impressive. He's not making himself, he's not imposing himself on him. But it's just enough to stimulate that curiosity. Similarly, when Paul was in Athens, waiting for Silas and Timothy, he started sharing the gospel with the Jews and the Greeks. We get to that later on, it's Acts 17. But similarly, though, he, he did not necessarily impose himself. He, he stood and he was just telling people about Jesus. He said he was an instrument for the gospel that invited people to invite him. The philosopher says in verse, in, uh, verse 19, 20, Acts 17, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting You'll bring some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. Invitation. He speaks the gospel and then it's, it's an invitation for people to go, what is this about? What's this guy talking about? Invitation, invitation. But he still talks about Jesus. He's not afraid to talk about Jesus. What happens at the end of Acts 17? Acts 17, 32, when they heard about the resurrection of dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. It's great. So Philip is, is yes, preaching the gospel through evangelizing, but he's also doing it in a way that invites an attentive ear. So the Ethiopian invites him to sit with him, builds up a rapport with him. There is a method that Philip applies here that we can learn well from, I think, and it's true. We want all people to know the gospel and be convicted to put their faith in Jesus, absolutely. But the hearer must be willing to listen. Matthew 13, verses 3 to 9, says, Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seeds fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop 160 or 30 times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Is that a different number? He who has ears, let him hear. Let him hear. We don't speak the gospel into a, a dead space. We're not, we're not there just to, uh, and it might work. I don't personally agree with it, standing on the street corner, speaking just from the Bible. It might work for some. I think maybe some people are not attentive enough to hear the gospel that way. It's about relationship, isn't it? It's, it's about bringing people through and, and guiding them through discipleship. Jesus spent time, he didn't stand on the beach screaming out scripture. He got into relationship with guys. He invited disciples to the way. Our good burden is to share the good news of the gospel, but the saving is done by God and for those that are willing to, and for those that are willing to listen. We are the instrument, God is the conductor.
So when the Ethiopian asks who is Isaiah talking about, himself or someone else, we have yet another glimpse here of who is at the centre of the Bible. This section alone in Acts 8 is littered with the question, who is the Bible about? So the Ethiopian has some feeling or thoughts that Isaiah is not talking about himself, otherwise why would he ask? He has a sense that there's something more to this piece of scripture. So what does Philip do? He lets scripture talk, verse 35. And Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. See, Philip is removing himself from the story, from the encounter, and he's saying, I'm going to talk about Jesus. It's not how good I can present it, but I'm going to tell you all about Jesus. He tells Ethiopia that what he's reading in Isaiah is the prophet talking about Jesus. So what we know is that Philip has been sent to specifically teach the essence of the gospel to this man, and more specifically to make sure it is always about Jesus. And I think this event sits nicely with the events of Simon the sorcerer. On one hand, we have a man practicing sorcery who's taken, who was taken and impressed by the outward display of of what faith produced. And on the other hand, with this man in the Ethiopian, we have a man who's seemingly intelligent, reading and digging into the scriptures because he wants to know in some way, maybe academically, who this God is. But in both instances, there needs to be someone who can steady either extreme. It's great that the Ethiopian is reading about God and he's asking these very technical questions, but he needs to bring him understand it's, a, it's all about Jesus. Great, that academic part will come. For Simon the sorcerer, he's way too far the other side. He's all about the seeing the, the stuff happen, the signs and the wonders. He's trying to bring, we learned last week, trying to bring Simon back, saying it's not about that. It's not about what you see. It's about trusting in Jesus. It isn't about signs and wonders, and it isn't about Isaiah. It is, as I said last week, what they point to. They both point back to Jesus. Philip, the tricky part is to make himself engaging and effective enough without being the Ethiopian's personal evangelist, or worse, some sort of wisdom-filled guru. This happens a lot. People have advisors. Have you seen the spiritual advisors? It's been around for probably 10 20 years maybe, but people, uh, and mostly rich people, uh, have these spiritual advisors to come and help them, uh, advise them. Uh, and, and this is not what's happening here at all. So we get to that part where the Ethiopian asked to be baptised. In fact, what we have to assume is that what Philip has told him <clears throat> convinced him. Convinced him that Jesus is the Christ and the saviour of the world. 36 says, as they travelled along the road, there came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water, why shouldn't I be baptised? 38, I'm going to explain why we skipped a verse. And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptised him. Why is it <clears throat> that we're missing verse 37? I won't go great in great detail why it's missing. I will tell you why, though. Verse 37, or as we, we, they would call it because it has to be somewhere, 
came in later manuscripts. It wasn't actually part of Luke's writing. Luke didn't write so-called verse 37, uh, and it wasn't written by him. And what many say is the best way to understand this, and you'll see this, if you read your Bible, you'll see a footnote, and it tells you what this, what this so-called verse 37 says. And so the only, I think the only version of the Bible that includes it is King James. King James is the only version that includes verse 37. But there's a good reason why it doesn't generally now, and that's because it's more of a footnote, a commentary, not written by Luke at all, uh, on the reason why Philip was happy to be baptised. And what you'll see at the bottom of your Bible on that page is it will say this. Some manuscripts include here that Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. The eunuch answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And all it really is, is just reaffirming that Philip had convinced him that Jesus is God, that Jesus is Lord in his life. That's what it, it is. So in essence, we don't need it because we can read 36 and 38 and know he must have convinced him because Philip is a pretty good evangelist. He knows how to deliver the word. Right, that bit's done. I need to say that because it's obviously missing, right? When we go through the verses 36, jump to 38, what are you trying to hide from us? I'm not trying to hide anything from you, okay? I'm not trying to change scripture. That's, how, that's what happened. But let's look at the language again of the verse. <clears throat> the Ethiopian is asking the question. He is prompting the action. From what we read, we can see that Philip's role is to be the instrument of the baptism. He is the one who will assist in God's reason for sending there. When we baptise here, that it's certainly based on a relationship with someone uh, that that person has. And that's true. But they're not being baptised because that person specifically showed them Jesus. Because again, the risk is there that if that person even doesn't believe in Jesus anymore, even backslides, even loses their faith, the risk is that any other people that uh, they cause to follow them would potentially lose their faith, right? They would suddenly doubt why they believed in the first place. So this principle, again, of not making the, the, the speaker, the evangelist, the person, because we're all fallible, we're all uh, open to be, <clears throat> to trip up, to fail in some way or another. So we point everyone to Jesus. So what we see are small but important aspects on how to maintain the right distance so as to allow Jesus to be close and central. It must be by prompting conviction and conviction of the person to faith in Jesus, not because we made ourselves integral to that faith they now have. They must decide on their own and they must acknowledge Jesus Christ. So this then moves us into the real crux of the meaning of Jesus and not us being at the centre of people's reason for hope and faith. Verse 39 and 40 that we're reading. And they came up out the wall, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. He didn't, eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at uh, Azotus, oh, I can't say that word anymore, and travelled about preaching the gospel in all of the towns until he reached Caesarea. Go back to this, this verse here, because that's what we're going to be looking at just as we come towards the end here. Just as they literally come out of the water after baptism, what happens? Well, see, can't we? Philip and the Ethiopian, they go off together preaching the gospel. And Philip works as his spiritual advisor, doesn't he? No, he doesn't. Philip was taken away by the Lord. 
what happens to the Ethiopian? Maybe today he'd probably get bored because he wants to feel the same when Philip was around. He wants that same experience when Philip was with him. And we see that a lot, don't we? We've seen that in church. We've seen the risk. We've certainly seen the risk here of people trusting so much in an experience that when they see people around them or things change, people tend to lose interest in the faith. The Ethiopian says he didn't see him again. He went on rejoicing. This sense that, of course, <clears throat> I'm sure he's so grateful to Philip. He's absolutely feels like he's in his debt. But really what the Ethiopian is saying when he's rejoicing, he says that Jesus can give me more than Philip could ever give me. Philip guided me there. Philip put me in the right direction. But it's not Philip I've come to worship or adore. Philip's taught me how to worship and adore Jesus. This is why the Bible is not about us. It's about God. That is why when the Acts Church are preaching, they're preaching about Christ's death and resurrection for the purposes to call people to repentance and salvation. They are not preaching about how great and important they are. Philip demonstrates that he, through his obedience to God that salvation through the gospel is about God first, who's invited us to be part of it. The church, not just us, church as in a Jesus-following, believing church, does not exist for the fame or celebrity of the leaders, the evangelists, the healers, or gifted people. If anyone finds themselves gaining notoriety because of their talent and pursues it for that purpose, then it is a worldly value, not for the edification of the church or for the worship of Jesus. We are not the conductors, but the instruments that are conducted. We are the body that exists for the purpose and mission of Christ and to him alone. So maybe just like Philip, I thought we'd end on letting the Bible speak and kind of encapsulating this, this point of what we see in Philip today and, and the point of seeing that it's not about the man, the woman, the gifted person, the skilled person. It is always about Jesus and people being used for his purpose, for his glory. 1 Corinthians 3, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 1 to 9, says this. That's this one. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? When one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned... I'm going to have to go back. 
as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labour. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. I think it's a good way to kind of bring together the point here. We're all part of something bigger than us. We're part of the kingdom of God, which is not by our control or by our will or by our choices or options of what we want it to be, rather that it is God's will and that we come under authority. She's so eager to learn. And we come under authority of God. So I say this. By all means, do some watering. Do some planting. But let's allow God to grow the relationship. Grow the relationship into the kingdom of God. Let's allow people to know that God is the one that we are preaching, not ourselves. Let's pray. And then hopefully we will worship if it works. Lord, we just want to thank you that you are a gracious God. We thank you that you have all the plans that we need. Lord, as we look to see Philip and what has happened, uh, or how you sent him, Lord, we do pray that your Holy Spirit guides us, even in the smaller things of the day-to-day life, of who to speak to, who to bring the word to, who to come alongside. We pray, Lord, that you will, you will be glorified in those encounters, that you are the one who is glorified in all these things. That, Lord, we learn that very good biblical lesson, more of you, less of us. More of your glory, less of our control. Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit to teach us, to guide us, correct us where we are. Not living to that way, Lord, of just letting you use us and letting you work. And so, Lord, we thank you that you will work through all things and make them work for your glory. And so, Lord, I pray that we will seek to be obedient and we will seek to comply so that we may see the glory of your majesty, of your kingdom coming to earth, of your Holy Spirit convicting and changing people from unbelief to total trust and faith in our Lord and Saviour. Lord, we thank you for the word. We thank you for the message. And we just come now to worship your holy name. We thank you, Lord. Amen.